science. special guest in the studio who we're going to introduce to you in just a moment so I'll keep the mystery alive and I'll come to somebody who's less mysterious but still a bit exotic oh wow and that's Andrew Glester and Andrew we we've not been doing this show together for five weeks I know and last week of course you weren't here because you were I think you were in a hot air balloon um I wasn't at that particular but you had been been and I hadn't heard from you since oh I see yes and I just assumed yeah, that was it. There was really. one point when I was I took a hot air balloon road ride over Bristol. Yeah, um, I'm sure many of our listeners have done that. Yeah, I'm sure everybody else who hasn't wants to. Yeah, it is amazing. But there was one point when we were heading, appeared to be heading straight for the moon. <laughs> and, at least in my mind, that's where I am. <laughs> and where where did you start from? Um, Ashton Court to the moon. <laughs> <laughs> took off to uh, across the south of the south of the city. Ended up in the old fries factory near uh, Kingsham. Kingsham, I don't know. Yeah, Kingsham. Yeah. Wow, that's fantastic. Well, I, we're going to be really boring now because I also, I mean, I, I a few years ago managed to get a. I think I, I won a balloon ride in a competition, oh. and uh, it was just the most exciting thing. And one of the things that struck me—it was so weird—was there was no wind. Yes. Because, because you move, it isn't weird when you think about it, no. but you expect it to be windy up there yeah. because you move with the wind. Yeah, oh, it's amazing. Yeah. Isn't it? and the other Pure relativity. That I hadn't realised was that the only sound I could hear, I don't know if this was the same for you, the only sound I could hear was dogs barking. Yeah. And they're all barking because you're going over their uh, yeah. area. You're so freaking them out. Yeah. They don't know what you are. And their sound carry, I don't know why that is, something to do with acoustics yeah, yeah. and loudness, probably. And uh, they, yeah, you see, as you're flying across Bristol, you can just hear dogs barking. No other sound mm. seems to travel um, to, to, to that point. Now, now, being high up in the air, yeah. approaching the moon, yeah. these are all clues yes. to the guest that we have in the studio today. They are. And everybody's waiting patiently to hear who it is. We'll put everyone out of their misery and say it's a huge pleasure to welcome Tim Gregory. Thanks for having me. Hi, Tim. Yeah, t- uh, Thank you so much for coming on the show. We know you, you are a very busy man. You've been a very busy man uh, on all sorts of fronts. We're going to explore that uh, in a little bit. But if you have seen uh, on Sunday nights on, the, on BBC uh, One, uh, sorry, Two, BBC Two, Astronauts, Do You Have What It Takes? And uh, there's a whole series of those programmes we've just had uh, last night, episode four. And uh, one of the stars of uh, that show, one of the people he's trying to find out if he's got what it takes to uh, be an astronaut is Tim Gregory. So, uh, Tim, thanks so much for, 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 for joining us. And uh, we're, we're going to find out uh, firsthand what it's like to be on that show. <laughs> so anyway, let me ask you, um, uh, in order to be involved in this programme, you, you're doing a PhD, I think. That's right, yeah, I'm at the University Sorry, of Bristol. I, I said that wrong. I, I said in order to be involved in this programme, you're doing a PhD. That's not the case. But you happen to be doing a PhD, which you kind of, you, you must have had to negotiate the time uh, because it's very demanding doing a PhD. Yeah, it was. And doing this really demanding TV series. Yeah, it was very time consuming. It was yeah. time consuming at the time, obviously, because I was away on location filming. Yeah. And now it's time consuming. It's, it's out and people are watching it because I'm going into schools and doing talks at different places and coming onto radio shows <laughs> like this. 
Uh, it's a bit of a, a bit of a balancing act. I feel like I'm spinning plates, but it, it's all worth it because one of the reasons that I wanted to be involved with the program initially was to get science out there and talk to people about it. So you're a science communication enthusiast. Oh, I love it. It's oh. just it makes it all worth it. Well, that suits us very well. Yeah. And that's, that is one of the best things about this program. If people haven't watched it, please get on iPlayer and watch it tonight. It is a wonderful TV program. It's reality TV, but with a brain. You know, <laughs> no offence to people who like reality TV ordinarily, but this, you watch it and you're learning something at the time, at the same time, and there's some really brilliant, I mean, you, you're doing all these, what you're going through is effectively what astronauts will go through in their training programme, some of the things that they would go through. Absolutely, in, in most cases it is the actual tests that they put astronauts through when they're selecting them for real. But you've got, watching you while you're doing these tests, you've got... Commander Chris Hadfield. Surely the astronauts don't have that extra pressure on them, do they? I mean, I, I watched you the other day. I was incredibly jealous. My wife will testify to this. I was quite cross on the sofa that I wasn't you at that particular moment. Yeah. <laughs> he's always cross. <laughs> <laughs> he's always cross that he's not in space. Oh, aren't we all? <laughs> and uh, you, you were doing, what was the Soyuz? Um, oh, the Soyuz yeah. docking. But you're doing something right. Talk me through it. But, but to start with, you're doing the Soyuz thing with Chris Hadfield sitting right next to you. Does that not add to the pressure? That was an incredible experience. I mean, the, the software that we used to simulate the, the Soyuz docking was the actual software that astronauts use to train how to dock the Soyuz in real life. And they also have a copy of that software on board the International Space Station that they yeah. used to practice with in orbit. Because if you're up there for a year, you know, you're going you're gonna to lose, you're gonna lose that, that fine control that you need over the Soyuz to properly dock it. And when, and when you return to Earth. So to get to actually use that in real life was just so cool. And especially having a real-life astronaut sat next year. Right. It, it almost felt like I was in the Soyuz for real yeah, a couple yeah, of times during that test. You really you really forget that you're in the middle of a, of a training facility. You really felt like you're there. I hope you don't mind me saying, but you nailed that as well. Didn't Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> didn't do too bad on that one. Yeah, yeah. Well, look, let, let's let's take a step back. No, 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 no. That's right. <laughs> let's, take, let's just take a step back because we just need to explain. It, it is, it, as you say, it's reality television. All four episodes that have uh, been broadcast so far are available on the BBC iPlayer, and uh, so uh, as Andrew says, uh, uh, do take a look at them. But let's let's explain the setup for anybody who hasn't yeah. seen it so far. So we've mentioned Commander Chris Hadfield, who was who is a uh, well was an astronaut and a commander. Of the ISS. Yes. Uh, just to make it clear, it's not the commander of ISIS, the commander of ISS, just in case there's any confusion and hate mail coming in. Um, that, it's not that. Um, An extraordinary man and uh, two other people, Aya Whiteley and uh, Dr. Aya Whiteley, who's a psychologist. She's the director of space medicine at UCL, it yes. says on my information here. And Kevin Fong, who we know, who's an anaesthetist and a trauma specialist. And yeah. Quite a regular on. on science uh, sciencey things on, on British television. Yeah, and he's also an expert in extreme environment physiology. So yeah. between the three of them, between Chris, Kevin and yeah. Ian, they kind of had all, all the major bases covered yeah. for what... They, they are examiners. Yes, they, they were judging us through all these tests that they were yeah. putting us through yeah. and, and yeah. judging our performance and our strengths and our weaknesses. Yeah. And then as the weeks go on, they could send people home. Yeah. So that it could happen at any time. We didn't know when it was going to and, happen. And, and what it seems to me is they, they tend to kick out two people a week. Is that right? On average, yeah. On Although average. in last night's... It's not fixed. It's not fixed. In last night's episode, it was only one person who got, yeah. who got sent home. Yeah, yeah. 
And what's that like? So, so some, someone, someone's been sent home and they, they, they come in, they say goodbye to the rest of you. Uh, they must be really crushed, really dis- dis- disappointed. Are, are you all supportive of each other? Or are you going, yes, it's not me? It was, it was a very strange environment to be in because from day one, the 12 of us, we bonded straight away because we're all there for the same reason. We've all got that shared passion and interest in space exploration and we all want to be astronauts. Although we all come from different walks of life, we all want that same goal. And I think part, part of being an astronaut is being supportive of your teammates and it's very difficult to not be supportive of people, even when you know that on paper you're in direct competition with these people. And if someone does badly, you know that maybe, I don't know, you should be thinking, yes, thank goodness, that's going to make me look a bit better. But yeah. it wasn't like that at all. From day one, we were all incredibly supportive and encouraging of each other. If someone didn't do well, the support was there. And if, if someone did well, it was congratulations all around it was a really good environment so whenever anyone got sent home it was it was difficult for them as well as the the people who were left i was wondering from the people who've gone so far i don't want any any spoilers no spoilers (laughs) (laughs) is anyone when they said they were going you were really shocked or could you kind of understand the decisions i think when hannah left she was the third person to leave she left in in episode two when hannah left that was a big shock to me because I was very close to Hannah. She was a great mentor. I think that's probably because of the amount of mountaineering that she's done. She's been a mentor to people on the mountains for, for many, many years. And I, she really took me under her wing. She's like an extreme environment enthusiast. Oh, she? yeah. yeah. She, she's been up Everest twice. Yeah. I mean, first time she was 100 metres off the summit, but that counts in my book. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, she, she, was, she was something else. She has so many good stories to tell and so many lessons that she's learned along her travels and her expeditions. And I really, really made very good friends with Hannah right from the word off. So when she left, it was it was tough. I thought, wow, if she's if she's gone, this is this is getting serious now. And also when Prash left, when the first person left, up up to that point, it had all been, wow, look where we are. We're at space camp. But when Prash left, it was a very stark reminder that actually there's only going to be one person left at the end of this. And, of course, it's striking as well because these people are so accomplished, as we, we, we just sort of indicated with Hannah. Prash is a surgeon. Yes. He's a really smart guy. Oh, absolutely, yeah. Uh, um, and uh, very, very committed to the process. Hannah, uh, as you say, was involved with sort of uh, extreme environments and looked very experienced in that. Um, but she really was very affected by sort of claustrophobia, wasn't she? Yes, Yes, she was. She'd been caught in avalanches before, and I'd known people that had been caught in avalanches. So yeah. she had, she had, she had a bit of a fear of claustrophobia, which, yeah. if you're going into space, is unfortunate. But you know, she's she's the kind of person that if she's got a fear, she's going to get out there and try and tackle it head on. She's not yeah. the kind of person who would shy away from that, which is why she was there and why she gave it a go as well. And I noticed in the program one of the things they said was that she had a, a tendency toward drama. Now, I'm not this is this is not me uh, criticising her to bring bring this up because uh, I, as my uh, mum would say, I couldn't light a candle to her uh, <laughs> abilities. So you know, I'm saying this humbly. But I thought that was very interesting that 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 uh, for certain issues, psychologically, it seems she tended to catastrophize things. You know, that dramatize things. And clearly, that's something you, you need to be ice cool, don't you, when, uh, if, if, if you're up in a space capsule? Hannah was a very passionate person about, about many different things. And I think if I'd been caught in an avalanche before and been minutes away from suffocation, I, I think I would probably have reacted way worse than she did. 
during the the underwater submersion test. Yeah. I think she she did very well considering that that she she'd had that experience. It's also, as you say, it's a very different thing to be an astronaut than it is to be a person in real life. You know, the astronaut <laughs> the astronaut drama level is much lower. It has to necessarily be much lower. So you're not judging her as a person. You're judging her as an astronaut. Oh yeah, absolutely. And that that's a really fine distinction to make because every single person of the of the twelve of us was so accomplished in their own ways and all had their own traits and personalities. But this was a competition to see if you had to, to become an astronaut. And you know, Hannah's a prime example of an absolutely amazing, fantastic, accomplished person who Chris here and Kevin thought didn't have what it took to be an astronaut. But that's fine. She's She's still amazing. She'll be all right. Yeah. <laughs> it's one of the things that I love about the programme, actually, is that they seem to have chosen people because they could genuinely win it. Everybody seemed to be. Yeah. They've not chosen people just to make a television programme better. Yeah. Because yes. they were good candidates. Or the wild cards. Yes, yeah. You know, yeah. the crazy person who's never going to get through sort of, yeah, sort of yeah, thing, you know, yeah. who's too eccentric or whatever. It's, it's none, of, none of that. Before, What was it like when you heard that you were going to be one of the candidates? Oh, I was in the lab at the time and they called me. And I, so I ran out of the lab and answered my phone. And, and when they told me, I just, oh, I think I probably screamed the corridor down because I was just so excited. I couldn't believe it because it had already been months in the pipeline, this application, yeah. to make it through to the final 12. And when I found out, I just thought, this is it. You're listening to Love and Science on BCFM Radio. So, uh, uh, Tim, it's fabulous to have you uh, with us. And, and uh, we've been talking about the programme and, and the experiences. I have to say, you are extraordinarily and relentlessly positive and happy in the, in, in the show. Um, I take it that's just you. It's not, it's not you've become delirious with joy because of the show. <laughs> this is your personality, isn't it? Every single minute that I spent during that process was just a, a dream come true. It was the closest that I've ever got to getting to see what it's like for, in, for real life, yeah. applying to be an astronaut. and. Yeah. Every morning I woke up and I thought, I'm going to try my best today, but above all, I'm going to enjoy this because I'm probably never going to get to get this far again. Yeah. And, and I, I really did. I enjoyed every second. It was fantastic. So it's reality TV uh, uh, with, uh, as uh, Andrew says, it's real, it's smart. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> what, um, what, happen, what actually happens at the end? Uh, oh, I mean, obviously, I'm not asking you about uh, details of what uh, of people, individuals, but what happens at the end of, of, of the show to the person who's selected? So of the final 12, there's one person left standing at the end, and that person, they get a personal recommendation from Chris Hadfield the next time the European Space Agency send out a call for new astronauts. And that's going to go a long way because although Chris is a retired astronaut, he's still very much involved with space agencies yeah. worldwide. He's involved yeah. in astronaut selection and mission control still. Yeah. So, um, it's not something you can fudge on the CV, is it? Because people can look at it and go, yeah, they, they did do that. Yeah, that'd look pretty good on your CV. Uh, <laughs> probably for any job. Yeah. I mean, but the, the number one person gets recommended, recommended by Chris Hadfield, but the rest of you are going to go for it as well, aren't you? Yeah, probably, I, I guess. I guess, yeah, why not? Yeah. But but even, even just being part of the programme... For, for me, it just it just gave me so many different skills that that I never really thought about, and it gave me a chance to develop and explore different facets of my personality. Mm. Um, so it's it's just been a useful thing in and of itself. Yeah, I think one of the things that they um, criticised you for so far 
is um, how you behaved on the, the evening when you had uh, you could bring a loved one. Oh yeah, <laughs> I, I have to say I didn't criticise you for that. I thought it was wonderful the way you banded across the room to, to your mum. Yeah, yeah. So I hadn't seen my mum for months up until that 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 evening, and then there we there we met like mm. in the presence of Chris Hadfield and all these yeah. amazing people. She was awestruck. Wasn't yeah, she? yeah, she was, yeah. and she she was very much a part of it from day one. She yeah. she. She was one of the first people that that knew that I'd applied for this, and she was she was there the whole way. Yeah, fantastic. Um, yeah. So the fact that my mum got to be involved with it, with this amazing thing that I was going through, was just yeah. oh, it was such a good evening. I'm so glad that she got to be there because she is the the biggest reason why I was there yeah. in that process. She's been so supportive my whole life, and I'm really glad that she got to be part of it. It was very cool. Um, how much do you think we're just going back to 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 the activities that uh, we've the ones that we've seen so far um is there any sense in which people got lucky on on the day i'm thinking for example of the uh, the test where you had to do the docking which we we, we mentioned earlier in the, in the program do you think that because there was one one guy there i'm, I'm afraid i can't can't remember his name where it just went completely uh haywire yeah and um, unfortunately, um, some uh, someone uh, was it Merritt who uh, who got uh, kicked out because she yeah. she just couldn't get close. Do you think there's a, an element of luck with some of those tests? I think there's probably luck involved with everything yeah. to a certain degree. But the, the tests were were largely based on on skill and innate ability to do something and yeah. learn something fast. So, for example, James A who did really well on the Soyuz, he, he docked it with like four minutes to spare, which was incredible. Yeah. Um, he's an avid video gamer, which undoubtedly uh, played a yes. big part yeah. in, his, in his ability to control that craft and his 3D thinking skills as well. Yeah. And I think my, my ability as well to think and visualise things in 3D, because I did an undergraduate degree in geology, visualising yeah. rocks underground in 3D, yeah. probably helped with that as well. And I played a couple of video games when I was younger. <laughs> a misspent childhood, as Kevin put it. <laughs> yeah, that's fa- that is fascinating. The, the, having these extra curricular things, which become, uh, you know, you can draw on. It, it's amazing what what skills and what experiences you draw on yeah. in those kinds of situations. Yeah. And I find that with my PhD as well, like yeah. hobbies that I've had since I was thirteen that I never thought would come in handy, yeah. turn out to be really useful. Like when you're imaging, when I'm imaging meteorites, for example, I've been interested in photography for many, many years now, and just knowing what an aperture is and how that and how that feeds into what an image looks like, it's really useful. So all these skills that you just get through your life, it's amazing where they where they crop up. Yeah. I've got a tremendous skill for slouching on the sofa. Yeah, so I don't know how that's gonna how that's gonna help. You do need to sit back when you're on takeoff. Oh, there absolutely. You are. Yeah, there you see, so might help out in a centrifuge. <laughs> come in really handy <laughs> now sorry sorry no, yeah, no oh, Andrew. the um the mars rover thing was amazing mm. yeah oh, that, that was, was so let's cool let's explain let's explain what it is then what did you have to do so the mars rover this this was in the mars yard at airbus in stevenage where they have a prototype of the of the mars rover that they actually use to do maneuvers before they're doing for real on mars because they don't want to crash it or get it stuck anywhere and the test was we had to go into a martian cave and explore it to find symbols on rocks using the UV torch on this rover. And we controlled it with all the controls that they use on the real Mars rover, with the camera and the lights, and it moved very slow as well, four centimetres per second. And there was also a delay in the controls. It was very much a a kind of real-life thing. 
And um, that was a that was a very difficult test, but one of the coolest, I think, because it was the actual Mars rover that they used to do these prototype manoeuvres. And Tim Peake has also controlled that very same rover, which is pretty pretty awesome. Or as he used to be known, the astronaut Tim. Yes. <laughs> yes. There's a few. More. <laughs> I, I thought I have to say I thought um, Dr. Ia Whiteley, who seems incredibly smart, was as scary as anything. Oh, she, she terrified me. On day one, when Chris, Kevin, and Ia stepped out of the helicopter, that was the first time we met. And what an entrance! Uh, <laughs> Ia, she she has this this presence about her, this very impressive demeanour about her. And the first time that I'd ever spoken to her was in the interview test in episode one, where she was figuring out how our minds worked. And that was so intimidating, for lack of a better word. But actually, Ear is one of the most lovely people I've ever met. She's just so sweet and so lovely. But her image is terrifying. Absolutely. It's partly because she didn't say too much, did she? She didn't say too much. She was always in the background with a notebook, taking notes. Um, When she was in astronaut selecting mode, she was was a bit intimidating. Yeah. What what was it like in the centrifuge? Because I, I have to admit, you know, I'm... Eat dodgems in the <laughs> at the fairground were enough for me. Going in the centrifuge, what, what a nightmare! Oh no, it was amazing. It was oh, it was so fun. This, this centrifuge is it's one of the only centrifuges in the world where the actual seating area on the end of the arm can rotate. So the g-force that you feel, you don't feel it side to side, and you don't feel it pushing back on your chest. The only direction that you feel the pull yeah. is downwards. So it it was just like being incredibly, incredibly heavy. Four and a half times my weight. And you you could barely lift your arms when you were at four and a half G and you could feel your face going. And because I'm quite tall, it was was a struggle to stay conscious. You would very quickly go unconscious in that environment if, if you weren't making a conscious effort not to. So I had to tense all the muscles in my legs and my abdomen and my lower body. And while I was in there, I thought, I'm going to make the most of this and experiment a little bit. So I, I experimented with, with relaxing my, the muscles in my lower body. And immediately, I could feel my vision becoming tunneled. Everything went kind of black and white. The colour drained from what I could see. And everything started going a bit fuzzy. And you felt yourself losing consciousness within seconds. But then you, you tensed up those leg muscles again and, that, and the, that abdomen muscle. And your consciousness comes back again straight away. It was quite an amazing experience. Did, did you learn any tricks uh, to cope with, for example, being incredibly uncomfortable or, you know, almost thinking you're going to lose consciousness, but having to concentrate on a task? You know, did, did, did you did you say, right, I've I've now permanently learned a way to cope with some of these things? Well, before the centrifuge test, we had a we had a five, 10 minute lecture from one of the, the experts who worked at the airbase facility who talked us through what our flight path was going to be and different symptoms that we might notice different sensations that we might have. So that, that was really useful, actually, because I, I certainly would have passed out because I've never been under high G-force, apart from teacups all on towers once. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and that were enough. <laughs> the other thing in the centrifuge, didn't they have screens in front of you showing? Oh, they did, yeah. They had these screens, and it was it was panoramic. So it was from, from the whole view was covered by this screen, and it was a simulation of what it would be like if you were actually sat in the cockpit of a rocket going up and... They even had the details down to the atmosphere thinning out as you were going up into altitude, and oh, it was incredible. And because you didn't know you were spinning, there were no windows, and all the G-force was, was downwards. It was in the Z-axis, as they called it. 
Um, you really forgot that you were in a centrifuge in Sweden and you really did feel like you were there in real life and your stomach were going and your heart was racing. Such an experience. I think we, oh, we're going to have to come back to this. Uh, uh, we can't let it go because there's so much to ask. But um, I think we need to do a bit of science news. Oh, OK. Ooh, and um, I think I can ask you, Andrew, to kick off on this. and just tell us, um, Cassini. Oh, yeah. This amazing probe that's been travelling around the, 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 the solar system. Yeah. Um, I, I, I have an interest in this in, in that um, I was once asked to interview by one of these huge relay things. I, I was connecting some people in Greece with some people in Bulgaria and London and whatever. And I interviewed the guy, and I'm ashamed to say I can't remember his name now, who designed the instrumentation for the probe that went down onto oh. the moon of Titan and floated in the in the sea of methane. Fantastic. And I, I remember saying to him, what on earth was that like? Just, you know, you're sitting in the, in the control, um, uh, in, in the control uh, room, and you get word for the first time that this thing that you've designed and built on earth has landed on the moon of another planet in a, in a sea of liquid methane and is sending back signals like how high the waves are, how cold it is, what the wind is doing. Mm-hmm. I mean, he, he just said, well, it was like, you know, just yeah. the most amazing yeah. thing that you could possibly describe. And Cassini's been doing these incredible things for some time now. Yeah, it has. It, well, it reached uh, Saturn in 2004, I think. So it's been, it's been around there for a while. And it is, it is a wonderful, wonderful mission. Perhaps, I would argue, perhaps the most beautiful um, space mission that there has been, uh, both in terms of the science that was done and the images that it sent back. Just incredible. All those wonderful images of, uh, of Saturn that we see yeah. these days are all from, from uh, Cassini, pretty much all from Cassini. Um, and uh, the other thing that I really like about it, which is not something that comes across all the time, is actually it's the size of a bus. I mean, it is a huge instrument. Mm. And um, it's because it come, It was thought of back in the days of Ronald Reagan, actually. It was, been, it was being built across all those presidents, um, launched under Bill Clinton, I think. Right. Yeah. And it doesn't really matter. Yeah. Um, but the point is, it was a long time ago. And it's, it's a relic of that time when space was big, you know, after the Apollo missions and everything. Mm. It was really big. When space was big. Yeah, it was. In the, in the old days. Yeah, sure. <laughs> okay. I'll say that again. So when space exploration had big rockets. Yeah. We still yeah. have big rockets, but you know what I mean? And um, uh, yeah, the other thing that I really like about it, and bear with me on this one, but it's, I liked, because what they're doing now, we should have said, actually, the reason it's in the news is because on the, the end of this week, Thursday to Friday morning, it's going to end its mission. It's going to crash, although it won't crash. Uh, it burn up in Saturn's atmosphere. And what they've been doing since April is that the spacecraft, again, the size of a bus, has been travelling in orbit between Saturn and its rings as it makes its final descent. Just amazing. It's amazing, isn't it? It's so cool. And if I may... I'd just like to say that I think about a little bit like Luke Skywalker as he goes into the into the Death Star to fire that shot. It's a bit like, but instead of doing piloting skills, they're doing maths. You know, that since April they have been working. That it is that kind of intricate in kind of the, the maths and the orbits because they don't really know exactly where everything is going to be. It's all a bit of. I mean, it's, it's not guesswork because they know an awful lot about where the orbits are going to be, where the planets are going to be, where Titan's going to be. They don't know exactly. So there's, 
an awful lot of skill that goes into the maths on this. There's an awful lot of knowledge and understanding. Tim, you're nodding away. And, and it's pure exploration as well. That's the beautiful thing about the Cassini mission. It was peaceful. That's, that was its objective, to go and study the Saturn system, and it proved to be more exquisite than we'd ever even dreamed of. But the rings of Saturn are, are just something in themselves, but the moons of Saturn that we've discovered and found out things about, it's just... It was the mission, the first mission that I got properly, properly interested in, Cassini. There's, there's something about it. Maybe it's something about Saturn, but Cassini's just opened up that world to us. Yeah, so I mean, we should make the point that um, although there are very few planets where we, we might expect to find life, moons are often a, a really, good, really good candidates. I mean, planets within our own, within our own solar system. Um, this is the story that after beginning its last orbit on Saturday, the 9th of September, the spacecraft Cassini will make its final flyby of Saturn's largest moon, Titan, on Monday today and take its final images of Saturn on Thursday this week before smashing into the planet and disintegrating on Friday. It takes a long time to get down there. <laughs> Cassini, which launched two decades ago, has been circling the planet for 13 years. The spacecraft has been hunting for signs of life on Saturn's moon recently discovering that all the conditions for it to thrive exist in the oceans of Enceladus, one of the, one of the other moons, a big icy moon. Enceladus, what a place. I think if I could stand on any solid surface in the solar system, it would be Enceladus, mm. with those cracks opening up in its icy surface, with the geysers issuing forth, spraying out into, the, into, the, into orbit around Saturn. With Saturn in the sky, it would be incredible. Yeah. And I, I think one of the really good things about Cassini is that it's kind of it's it's blown a huge hole in this concept of a, of the habitable zone around a star because we found that actually moons are are probably more than capable of of harboring life which is not something that we had before Cassini yeah, on yeah. Enceladus and Titan yeah, yeah. and now perhaps Europa around Jupiter yeah. so it's kind of increasing the number of potentially habitable places in our own solar system that are well outside the traditional hab- habitable zone if, if you were going to design a mission, as a, with your knowledge of astronauts and indeed of studying space rocks, to go to Enceladus, what would you do? I, I would love a sample return mission to Enceladus because the beautiful thing about Enceladus is that it's got ice volcanoes on its surface. And because it's tiny, it doesn't have much gravity. So that the ice crystals that get blasted out of the surface of Enceladus, they go into orbit around Saturn. And these ice crystals have actually made one of the rings of Saturn. It's called the E-ring. So there's all this material in orbit around Saturn in a ring that is just there for us to scoop up and bring back to Earth. It is well within our capability now, and it wouldn't be that expensive to have a sample return mission where we could bring back pieces that, that originated inside the moon Enceladus, and we could bring it back to Earth, and we can see, see if there's life in there. It's giving me shivers. <laughs> now, look, it's, it, it, it's entirely realistic for you, either... If you were the winner of this program or not, and we don't we don't know that yet, that's not something we're talking about. We can talk about um, that. You you could well be an astronaut out there in space. Would you go to Mars? That's a, that's a, that's an actual realistic thing for you. Would you would you do it? I, I would I would go to Mars if if the if the objective was to set up a permanent colony there with the intention of of living there. Not just going there, living on a few months of whatever you've taken with you and then dying. I would go there oh, yeah. to, if, if it was a long-term mission, certainly. Yeah. yeah. Well, there can't be many people who would take the option, would there, of, of 
going and dying. I mean, going going out in a blaze of glory. Oh, I don't know. They, they opened it up, this one-way mission to Mars, and the, the, the queue was enormous. So many people applied. I think there's, there's something about the human spirit of going to these places that no one's ever been to before to see what's there, and we've still got that now. Because, yeah. you know, inside our heads and genetically, we're identical to what we were 100,000 years ago, pretty much, and that, that, that primal instinct of wanting to go to these places is still around. And I guess that's what mainly drives space exploration. Just worth remembering that it is a NASA, ESA and the Italian Space Agency who work together to bring this amazing uh, space technology to us, amazing space mission. And uh, let's hope that the, the, even whatever happens with the politics around the world, those scientists and space scientists and space agencies continue to work together to make these amazing missions for us all to enjoy. Absolutely. Space exploration is a human endeavour. It doesn't belong to a single country. I think that's one of the best things about it. We can put all petty politics aside to work towards this, this common goal and do amazing things. What do you say to people who say, oh, hey, you could spend the money on something better, you know, on medicine, yeah. feeding the world? What do you say to that? The way that funding works, for example, when I... When I buy a new meteorite to analyse as part of my PhD, it's not like that money could be spent on malaria drugs for somebody in Africa. Because if it was, obviously I would rather buy the malaria drugs. That's not how the funding works. But space exploration benefits everybody, not just because of the spin-offs, but because it's, it's a journey. It's a journey that humans have always been on, exploring new places, and we're still continuing that now. And actually, in comparison to a lot of things, space exploration is not that expensive. When you look at the cost of war, for example, space exploration is a fraction of a fraction of a percent. So I wish people would direct their their displeasure with, with funding structures towards people who fund war rather than space missions. You're listening to BCFM with uh, me, uh, 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 Love and Science, to be specific, uh, with me, Malcolm Love and Andrew Glester, and our fabulous guest, uh, Tim Gregory from the uh, TV show Astronauts. Do you have what it takes, BBC uh, Two? And uh, normally we'd be playing some more music right now, but but, but uh, our time's ra- running out fast. It's been such a fascinating conversation with Tim, as we would have guessed if anybody had seen him uh, on the show. <laughs> Uh, there's not a lot of uh, uh, space for anything but enthusiasm. It's a really mar- marvellous experience talking to you, Tim. And so Thank I'm you. just going to keep going and, and just pick up a couple of uh, other stories. Uh, this isn't really a story uh, so much as uh, just something that I thought was worth mentioning um, uh, about hurricanes. Um, of course, uh, 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 very much in our minds are well, several natural disasters around the world at the moment, and our, our thoughts go out to people uh, who are struggling with these uh, with these hurricanes, with uh, earthquakes, with flooding, and so on in many places in the world. But t- particularly, of course, uh, right on the top of our minds has been Florida uh, uh, overnight. Um, it turns out, uh, j- just just get this piece of information; it's absolutely extraordinary. In one day, an average hurricane releases as much energy as half a million atomic bombs. Wow. I find that very hard to believe. Of course, it's not radioactive and all of that, but that's how much energy there is being released. You've got to take in all the all the energy that's released throughout the atmosphere, and these things are very, very yeah. tall Incredible. and very, very deep. Uh, and how it works is when the sun heats an ocean to more than 82 degrees, moist, hot air rises up, meeting cooler air, creating thunderstorms. 
Upper level winds and surface winds come together, forming a circular pattern called a tropical depression. And then when the winds reach 74 miles an hour, a hurricane forms, sometimes as wide as 500 miles in diameter, as in fact has been with um, uh, Irma. Uh, so it's the size of Texas, uh, reaches a height of nine miles. So these things are unbelievably massive. If you saw uh, that group of people who were going to shoot at the... Um, did you see this? There was a, a kind of a... Someone said, oh, let's go and shoot at the hurricane to make it go away. Mm. Yeah, they really should read some of these figures. <laughs> <laughs> um, and one other little fact before we move on. Hurricanes spin counterclockwise in the northern hemisphere and clockwise in the southern hemisphere. That's to do with the Earth's rotation. But, of course, if you're up in the space station, you can see these things. Oh, yeah. And I think clearly, hurricanes are a great reminder that we like to think we are, but humans are not in charge, actually. It's nature that's in yeah. charge. And I think we're going to be seeing a lot more of this kind of thing over the coming years and yes. certainly the coming Don't decades. The big elephant in the room, climate change. It's impossible to, to say that this particular storm was caused by climate change because climate is an average of weather. Yes. But this, this year alone, something's changing. And if, you were, if, you were, if you're in denial before, I think you're kind of running out of arguments that you can put forth to say that climate change isn't real. Apparently, it's the first time that two Category 4 hurricanes have hit the, the United States mainland in the same year. Wow. And these things, have, it's happened within, what, a week, mm. a fortnight? Uh, Yet so. more records being broken. Year yeah. on year. Yeah. yeah. Absolutely. Almost like it's changing. Almost. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> so something uh, should be taken very seriously. Now, this is my, uh, I love this story. Um, this is a complete change from uh, space and uh, all of that. African wild dogs <laughs> apparently vote... Uh, about whether or not they should move off onto a hunt, mm. whether they're ready or not, by sneezing. <laughs> <laughs> and this comes from a bunch of uh, researchers, uh, a collaboration between Swansea University, a uh, university in Australia, I think it's the University of New South Wales in, in Sydney, and uh, the United States, um, that they monitored endangered dogs at the Botswana Predator Conservation Trust, uh, very, very carefully over a long period of time. And they figured out that the dogs um, agree, uh, show that they think it's time to move on by sneezing. And when 10 of them sneeze, that's it. It's a quorum and it's time to go. Isn't that amazing? Yeah. And, and if one of the pack leaders is involved in the sneezing, they, they need fewer votes. In yes, because a pack leader has blocked votes. <laughs> yeah. That's right. So it can be a, a dominant male or, or a dominant female, yeah. and they get more votes. That's right. Yeah. So uh, Life I, works in mysterious yeah. ways, eh? Absolutely. I wonder if the, the EU referendum would have come out differently if we <laughs> voted by sneezing. <laughs> we, just, we just did it by sneezing, yeah. Yes. Can we do a rerun? Yes. Yeah. <laughs> As the hay fever season comes around. <laughs> um, did did you have room, Tim, to uh, make uh, good friends uh, uh, on on the show? Oh, ab- absolutely! Like I said earlier, we were all there for the same reason. We all have that that shared interest and passion in space exploration, and we all have that shared goal of wanting to be an astronaut. Many of us for for many many years. So I remain good friends with with all eleven people. Good. 
and uh, so uh, y- you know you might be having space parties in the, in the future absolutely we've already, we've already had a couple <laughs> <laughs> they're out of this world <laughs> uh, I've got to be careful what I say it will go, I should stress I actually don't know what, 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 what happens in, in the end but say for people who've left the programme there was no indication from anybody that that was it they were, they were kind of giving up oh absolutely not just, just by the fact that we're all there we're all very, very determined people. And w- one of the, the best things about taking part in this programme is that for all of us, we all have our, our pitfalls highlighted and things that we can work towards because becoming an astronaut is not, some, it's not like a place that you can reach unless you actually get there. It's a very, very long journey and there are lots and lots of things that you can do in life that can lead you to that point to actually become an astronaut for real. And it's worth saying that you could be the perfect candidate to be an astronaut and you're still probably never going to get to be one. But just just by trying, the skills that you'll learn along the way and the experiences that you'll have will make for a very, very good life. So it's a kind of win-win situation, wanting to be an astronaut and taking it seriously. <laughs> what about, what about, is this, in fact, it's a slightly more mundane uh, side of it, is actually being a part of a reality TV show. Did it? You, you, you don't strike me as somebody who cares that much about people seeing you, your private moments, you know, seeing you react, seeing you be emotional, excited, and, and, and so on. Um, is it, have you had to learn how to do that, or are you just relaxed about it? I'm very comfortable yeah. with who I am. We're all human. Uh, I never, I was never really phased. I, one of the things that I said to myself when I went into this process was, Tim, be yourself. It sounds really corny, but don't put a front on for the cameras. Don't try and pretend to be anybody that you're not. And I can honestly say that through the whole thing, I was true to myself. Uh, so I'm, I'm really pleased about that. Okay. Now I'm, I've realised I've got to apologise to a little girl called Lyra. Because... Uh, this is Andrew's daughter, and I promise we're going to put this right for you, Lyra, but we can't do it in, the, in this week's show. It's my fault. It's because I wasn't able to get hold of the recording properly. Oh, okay. I couldn't download it properly. But we've got an answer to a question for you, and we're going to have it for next week, which is all about teeth. Yeah. Ooh, yes. exciting. Yeah, all about teeth. Which uh, I've got one last thing I can ask, ask you. It just jumps back to that. Uh, Tim, uh, Gregory, uh, from uh, Astronauts, do you have what it takes? <laughs> Which is, um, how would, I mean, it was, this was part of the show, operating on yourself. I know you had to do tests on yourself, but, you know, could you pull a tooth out? Could I, oh, jeez, I hadn't thought about that one. You know, that's, I mean, that's, that might happen, might Well, Hannah was a dentist yeah. in her spare time, so um, <laughs> if she was up there with me, I'd, I'd let her take my tooth out. Before I tried it myself, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I trusted with my life, so I trusted taking a molar out or two. But all, all this, uh, you know, all this surgery stuff, you know, it's uh, it's uh, a skill that you've got to learn, isn't yeah. it? Not, not the sort of thing that you think about. Well, look, just to uh, say again, uh, the show Astronauts. Do you have what it takes? Uh, is on uh, BBC Two. It's on the iPlayer. You can see it uh, on Sunday nights, but you can get all four episodes so far. Uh, uh, on the uh, BBC iPlayer. Uh, uh, find out what happens to Tim, Tim Gregory and the rest of his colleagues. Uh, and uh, from Andrew and me and Tim, uh, thank you for being with us. Have yourselves a very good evening and uh, don't forget to join us again next week. Love and science. <laughs>